Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Stands Newtown Theatre here at the Edinburgh Fringe 2023. Make some noise for yourselves. And make some noise for Darren McGarvey. All right, troops, how's it going? I'm just trying to get, take a temperature check here just to see what level of rowdiness we've got. It gets a bit rowdier as the week goes on, but you can never tell at the fringe. Um, I was here last year uh, as well, which was obviously the first time that the, the fringe had been on since lockdown. So, you know, it was amazing for me, an amazing privilege to be here, you know, watching our, our famous capital city get back on its own two feet. Thanks to the temporary migration of hundreds of talented Glaswegians who migrated here for the month to provide uh, Edinburgh with some culture. Uh, I've got a, a, an amazing uh, couple of guests on for you this evening, but I think I'll just take five or so minutes just to kind of warm you guys up a wee bit with uh, some material. So I know there's a lot of talk just now at the fringe, it's a bit of a cultural war, uh, lightning rod. This is an era, I would say, characterised more than anything by division, tribal disagreement. Nerves are short, tempers are flaring, but I'm sure there is one thing that everyone in this room can agree on. Meeting Liz Trust really took it out the Queen. <laughs> Do you remember Liz Trust? <laughs> Do you remember... Do you remember when Liz Truss used to look down the lens of a camera and reassure us all that with her what you see is what you get? Not knowing that that was the first time in history that a politician had both accurately and concisely described the true nature of a problem. <laughs> Aye, it's, uh, it's mad to think where we even went down the Liz Truss route, isn't it? Really? So the theme of the event this evening, obviously, is, is an emphasis on writing and also trying to kind of create a bit of a dichotomy between writers of different generations because the whole industry that has grown up around writing and your thirst for writing has changed. It's gone through a couple of revolutions and it's about to go through another one with the onset of artificial intelligence. But the most interesting thing I can say about writing, to be honest, is to sort of elaborate a wee bit on my experience of, of writing my second book. You see, the thesis of that book, The Social Distance Between Us, uh, was, was this idea of proximity. This idea, how can people who have only known power, wealth and privilege always end up in charge of a country where most people will never see that kind of power, wealth and privilege? And why haven't we started to zero in on the fact that that might be part of the fucking problem in this country? Of course, the great irony for me when I was trying to come up with this grandiose thesis was that as a result of lockdown, I was plunged into closer proximity to my wife and children than is either normal or fucking tolerable. You guys all remember lockdown, don't you? Uh, I don't know what your pre-lockdown experience was. Mine's was I was in rehab for a month, uh, exhausted and burnt out, looking for all your fucking validation. Trying to set and guess, 
what does we 2.5 saltire on Twitter want me to say and do today? Turns out that actually makes you quite sick. So I was in rehab, I got detoxed, I came out, it was Christmas. Um, I got out of Christmas, then it was January, and uh, I, I got a wee phone call for HMRC to January just to let me know. Actually, I, I wasn't wealthy, I was a fucking idiot. One financial mistake away from a rather humiliating and inconvenient return to poverty. And after that humbling experience, I celebrated with a very expensive wedding. So that was my pre-lockdown experience. So lockdown for me was like marriage, family, recovery boot camp. And I remember in lockdown, about two weeks in, when there was still a bit of a novelty about it, if you had a garden and a couple of tellies, and the sun was beating down, you get the PS4 dusted off and fired up. My darling new wife at the time, she's still my wife, by the way. Uh, she turns to me and she says, Darren, loving her eyes. If we can get through this, we can get through anything. And I says, do you know what? You're right, Becky. But also, I'm starting to notice some things about the way you breathe. <laughs> so now that I feel that you're sufficiently warmed up, uh, I'm going to introduce the guest. I'll spare your time and my own time. And I'll spare the long preamble. The first guest is Irvin Welsh. <laughs> Welcome, mate. And my second guest, this is a special one for me, given that it is my own show and that I'm actually in charge of it, which is a novelty that is not going to fucking wear off, let me tell you. Then I can just pick whoever the fuck I want, you know what I mean? And there was someone back in my past who really, really helped me when I needed it. And she might not even remember how much she helped me, but I always thought if I'm ever in a position to return the favour, I'm going to do it. And then the opportunity came. So back, uh, a few years back, when I was running for the DWP, I decided I had to sign up to any course that would have me in college, and it happened to be a journalism course, and that's where I met the next guest, Kat Cochran. Me and her were a wee bit longer in the tooth than some of the young pups straight out of school into college. And so I think we had a connection on that basis. But I remember when we just got there, she produced this portfolio. She'd already created loads of work. It was really well organised. It was really well formatted. And I thought, fucking hell, man. She knows what the fuck she's doing. I better stick close to her. And then a couple of years later, when I was a ball hair away from failing the course, it was really her help and patience that got me through the final furlong and qualified as a journalist. But she is also an amazing, talented, insightful, hilarious writer in her own right. She's a poet. She's a, she's a non-fiction writer and also a very good fucking journalist. So without further ado, put your hands together for Kat Cochran. Thanks, Dan. I'm kind of getting used to these thrones. What do you, what do you feel about the seats, guys? Taskmaster. Taskmaster. <laughs> I'm getting a tremendous sense of power here, this is great. <laughs> it's like, you can't see anybody, so it's like, you know. I, know, I, I, I normally, find that is. Normally, Edinburgh audiences are really sexy, and I can't really tell here, but um, <laughs> if you see me stumbling around in the dark, don't kind of be alarmed. <laughs> so I thought maybe uh, it would be worth just kind of maybe getting some insight from you, Irvin. I saw an amazing interview you did with Beth Rigby 
maybe a couple of months back. We, I was on holiday with the family and we were catching a rare bit of, of, of telly before the usual onslaught of child-based activities begins. And uh, you were answering lots of different questions, but there was one, uh, one remark you made in particular where you were kind of casting your, your eye back to the time when you were first getting started and how really publishing, writing, and, and, and the marketplace, if you will, has changed. You know, you, we don't need to go into too much detail about Trainspot, and I know you'll be sick of talking about it, but you yourself said it would be very difficult, even for a great book, to get that sort of platform today, despite the fact that the machinery and software exists to have it everywhere. And I wonder if you could just elaborate on that. What is it that's changed over the last 20, 30 years? Um, I think the, the, the main thing is that uh, we don't really have a, a culture, now a street culture, we have a media culture, everything is on the internet, it's online. Um, and, you know, I mean, I run a dance music label uh, down in Brighton, and it's in, you know, we get a lot of stuff from talented young musicians, basically, and it's people that are writing dance music, they're making dance music, they're producing it in their bedrooms. They've never actually danced, they've never been to a dance club, you know? So they miss out that kind of lived experience, that sort of vibe and that kind of, um, that soul, if you like, of, of, of having something that's kind of contested and it's out there and it's, um, whereas now you're, you're in a, you're in a, a kind of top-down sort of um, hierarchical thing. Now it's like um, the Instagram sort of um, influencer tells you what, you know, says what people like and the, the and people generally conform, they go along with that kind of thing. So it's kind of, I think the, the top down, the media culture that we have, uh, which was supposed to be about, uh, the internet was supposed to be about setting us free, but you had the, you had the internet too, which was the, the kind of version of the enclosures internet. Yeah, um, and it became uh, much more about sort of um, harvesting our thoughts and our history and our data and kind of, um, controlling us and presenting us with algorithms of, of ourselves, you know, so things are so much more controlled. So to have a, a book that's, um, that's very much from a, seen to be from a subculture and not from the dominant culture, it'd be very, very hard to, to, um, to get traction, to get that, to, to get people behind it in that way. And obviously with, with repeated success over the years comes a little bit more clout and therefore I would imagine confidence on the part of the industry and whatever ideas you're bringing to the table. But I'd be curious to know as well if you've still to this day will pitch things or talk about things and, and, and there is a, there is a, there's something lost in translation. You know, the, the kind of, the purveyors of the dominant culture are kind of like, what the fuck are you on about, big man? Whereas you're still kind of, you know, I would imagine you're still plugged in in some ways to the, to the, to the world that you came from. Well, I think you find it, uh I'm quite fortunate in publishing because I'm really am allowed to do what I want. I've got a very kind of rarefied place because I've, I've managed to carve out my own kind of niche of what people expect. Um, and uh, I think in TV, uh, not so for them a bit intermediate, but in TV it's more difficult because TV you've got the notion of an audience and you have to think of an audience. When you don't, you know, you don't really think of an audience when you write books, you're just doing it for your own enjoyment really. Um, but uh, I think with, with telly, it's like, you know, the, you've got the, the producers have got a take on it. The, um, 
the streaming platforms or the broadcasters have all got kind of shareholders and any controversy the share price goes down so the kind of um, the basically the conservative um, sort of uh, kind of shareholders and owners of the companies have these sort of um, kind of liberal kind of policemen in the next level down so you have a kind of um, you have that whole double aspect in neoliberalism the economic kind of uh, uh, thing that's off the table and you can't talk about it because this is the way it is and then there's a, <coughs> there's a social liberalism which is kind of more contested basically uh, and uh, so you so you you have these red lines that you you know that you know they exist and they're, you know, they're coming into publishing as well but I mean again I'm fairly lucky that I've been able to escape most of them but that's a, a temporal thing you know it's like sort of uh, because I was established um, in the 90s, I was established before the internet, before kind of uh, this millennium, and it becomes, transporting becomes like, you know, like Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and all that, it becomes something that um, it's, it's ossified in this sort of, um, in this culture, in this media culture, so it just regurgitates every five years for another generation, yeah? And it's, it's really interesting to think that that, that era where things could become, as you say, ossified, could be over for most things, irrespective of the quality, because there's always something being lined up to come in the next Friday. Um, Kat, could you talk us through, first of all, um, the recent book that you've published, and then also the reason that you chose to do it yourself, because I think there's an overlap here between uh, the two of you in the sense that you had a kind of idea of how you wanted to present this book and you came up against barriers because there's very strict, rigid ideas about how certain formats or forms should not blend. But that wasn't, that wasn't what your vision was and you just did it yourself, didn't you? I did, yeah. It was, it was kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of aware that um, I'm, I'm probably more like maybe people in the audience than, than Irvin, you know, whereas by wanting to kind of... Um, maybe having the first book out or having a book that you're sitting on or an idea that you're sitting on um, and maybe going to a publisher and getting the notebacks or coming up with ideas and you're just, you know, notback after notback. And then I don't know, you know, I don't know if Irvin, if, if, if the self-publishing had been out when you were doing Trainspotting or when you were doing Filth or something, would you have taken that? Definitely. I mean, I think it, I think it would have had to. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think it would have just had to. I mean, mm -hmm. We brought a, I brought a book out with John King and Alan Warner on uh, Friday, and we did it through John's London Books, which is small independent. Okay. And it just felt great that you could, um, you know, you, you didn't have a lead-in time of 18 months to a year. You know, yeah, you could just, yeah. we could just knock, we could basically write the stories, edit them and knock mm -hmm. them out. And uh, it felt like, you know, when I first started to get into writing and, you know, that kind of fanzine culture that was around then. Mm -hmm. And it was great, it was great being able to do that, you know? Right. Because I've often found, you know, like, I, I, I self-published through Amazon and I had sort of qualms about it because the whole Amazon thing doesn't always sit quite right, you know, <laughs> with, you know, certain things that they do ethically and the tax thing and all the rest of it. So, but something that really set the idea in motion for me was last year I was at a, a poetry event in Edinburgh, funnily enough, and uh, I'll no mention who it is, but um, who somebody that became quite a good friend, had a poetry book, good kind of bit of work, you know, very decent book, I've, I've, I've read it since then. And she'd been published by um, 
an independent publisher and we got into the conversation of how she only get like a pound a copy and, she, and uh, the, the, the book was selling for a tenner you know and I was thinking hang on a minute te you know like only 10% like but the thing about it was that she was quite happy with this and I was sitting there going no no this this can't be right so I went away and I've, I've kind of you know that that conversation in itself kind of like I, th I thought there has to be a better way to do this so I looked at all the kind of ways to do it and Amazon was probably the best one in terms of the easiness of it you know so kind of hooked up with I'd finished my book got it edited edited the you know like 10 times over because if you're going to self-publish you can't just put anything out there you know it has yep. to be tight it has to be edited to death you know um, not just by yourself but by really you know qualified people or people that you know and trust and whatever um, and then I did the mass, and I and I found out that I was getting a bit more through the ebook, a bit more through selling the um, the the paperback and the hardback. But of course, when you self-edit, it's a completely different ballgame because you've put all the work in to get it there, and then you get your your author copies or your, it's available to sell. But then what happens? You've got to be your own marketer. You've got to be your own yeah. like seller you know you don't have that publishing house behind you or that agent or whatever so you've got to kind of like be everything after that and that's maybe when the hard work can come in because you know if you love writing it's like you write and you do it and, it, and that's almost a pleasure although it's hard work but it's a pleasure um but when you're sort of like all oh, right okay i need to sell this thing if i want to pay the rent or if i want to become a serious writer or <laughs> i want to you know, so that, that, that's the journey that I'm on now because the book called Sugartown, uh, just sorry, it's a book of short stories and poems and it's all about um, Glasgow basically. I'm, I'm, I grew up in East Kilbride but I've been living in Glasgow for the last 15 years and it's kind of about um, conversation, being sparked by conversations I've had in chippies and bookies and bus queues and things like that and it's about the Glasgow sensibility and it's about a very working class kind of place. Um, and it, that's that's reflected all the way through. So, and my, my dream is like for that book to be in every single bookshelf of every single Glasgow, West of Scotland, um, you know, house. Because like it's like you're saying, how do you get a book to be popular than another? How do you get somebody to buy your? But it's a bit like how do you get somebody to come to your show and know the show down the road? That kind of thing. So it's a lot of hard work in the after publishing when you when you do the self publishing. It's good fun because I do I, I sort of get it out there through doing po uh, poetry performances and spoken word and stuff like that. And there's a really good community in Glasgow around that. Um, so that helps. I take the books along and it's like I sell a few and all the rest that you get word of mouth and whatever. And I guess it's a kind of solidarity as well when mm. you're kind of part mm. of a scene. Aye. I mean, I'm not as involved with the music scene as I used to be and it's, it's mm. partly because my responsibilities have changed, partly because the group of friends that I grew up with, you know, we've all moved on to different places in our lives. So there's a nostalgic notion of what it would be like if we all got together and then there's reality where we're just talking about our Aye. health problems. Mm. And me and my wife are, are moaning about the, the child rearing responsibilities <laughs> and all of this sort of stuff. But there is a brilliant time when you are plugged into a scene. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. really, it's weird because at the time it feels like a grind. And at the time you don't realise it. But when you cast your mind back, this has been my experience, after having achieved a goal you set yourself, mm -hmm. it's those days you remember mm -hmm. the most. It's like 
the memory of going to school, you never appreciated it at the time, you never appreciated all the cunts that you were in classes with and all the bams and the teacher that said about you and all these things. But these are memories I can recall so vividly now because they are just seared in there. Just think of it as the good old days. Aye, you know? and it's because mm -hmm. of the connections that are being made, but mm -hmm. you don't realise the significance of it till later when maybe there's mm -hmm. less of those connections because you have professionalised what you're doing. And, mm -hmm. and, and so it's a, it's a crazy journey. I'm interested to, 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 to kind of touch perhaps on technology. Uh, the, 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 the spectre of, of artificial intelligence looms large over everything. I don't know what your experience or understanding of it's been, but you'll have heard it talked about, you'll have read about it yourselves, no doubt. I was using ChatGPT to tell my children customised bedtime stories. So I would instruct it to come up with like a 10 minute story that contained the names Daniel and Lily and, uh, and different themes, you know, sometimes funny, sometimes heartfelt or whatever. And how quickly it was able to do that, that was the thing that sort of worried me. Mm -hmm. But that's something that's coming down the pike for a lot of us at, at some stage. Mm -hmm. The technological difference that we are dealing with now, and I guess this is something about the kind of dichotomy between the two of you, is that how we hear about how other people are receiving our work or how we gauge where things are sitting culturally is all being mediated through social media giants, mm -hmm. the mechanics of which are underpinned by different incentives. And so it's difficult sometimes really to kind of, you can think that you're in touch with culture, but you're in touch with a version of culture that the software's trying to predict is gonna get you engaged. And I wonder how involved with that do you get, Irvin? Do you, do you, what sort of, do you try to second guess yourself based on what you see in social media? Well, I mean, I kind of, uh, I, I really use social media. I mean, I'm only on uh, Twitter and Instagram and I kind of, I'll bung out pictures on Instagram and I'll, I'll say anything on Twitter just to get kind of followers basically so I can ram a leaflet into their hand, basically, you know, about, about uh, what I'm doing next, like, you know. So I thought that an instrumental way, I don't really engage in any kind of meaningful way with it. So I'm pretty much in um, my own wee world of what, you know, what I do. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interfaced with it directly now because I'm actually, you know, I'm, I'm a member of the Writers Guild in America because I lived in America for 10 years, basically, and work, work in Hollywood. And uh, we're on strike just now. And what, 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 this is actually such a, a really, interesting strike because um it is you know it is basically about that it's about the you know the what what the intellectual property is and who owns it and when it should you know and, and will, will we be replaced with artificial intelligence and also simultaneously you have to dumb down a culture so that um people will just you know people are, uh, people are basically operating as robots now you know we're recycling old stuff but you know uh, so <clears throat> the robots are just faster, basically, like, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, but there's, again, it's what was talking about, the, the human element, there is still a human element, because um, right now, machines um, don't change when somebody comes into the room, you know what I mean, they kind of, or when another machine comes into the room, but they are working on it, now they've, now they've got one that, um, they've taught, uh, they've taught one artificial intelligence machine to lie, which, um, doesn't sound like a really great idea, like, no. you know what I mean? But, uh, but yeah, so I mean, um, you know, they've, they've done that now and then we're, you know, we're, you know, it's, we're all basically 
We are all kind of sort of techno serfs, basically. You know, we're serving the, the, the big clouds of, you know, the, the Chinese and the American clouds, one or the other, basically. And that's the sort of new Cold War. Um, and, um, and, you know, the degrees of freedom that we have, uh, not just as artists, but as citizens, um, in terms of the prescription of our behaviour, is kind of becomes um, sort of more and more contracted, I think, every year. There's that kind of weird blend where there's the kind of Orwellian monitoring of our behaviour with the sort of brave new world. It's so convenient that we kind yes. of welcome it, you yeah. know, or we can kind of turn a blind eye to it. Maybe we don't understand uh, how serious it is. Now, when we started college, this would have been the year just before the referendum. So it was a lot of activism, yeah. a lot mm. of campaign, just blogs coming out of every hole. And it was a very, very busy time. And I remember having watched you using technology and you had a blog and I, it was from you I got the idea to start a blog. Mm -hmm. So I thought, hang on, this is cool. So I can just start publishing what I think on my own thing. Mm -hmm. I don't have to get somebody's permission to do that. And that's when I started to find an audience for my other writing because I had been a hip hop artist. Mm -hmm. But that was the t golden age of Facebook before the referendum results, depending on what way you voted and what algorithm echo chamber you were in. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really until, you know, um, late September 2014 <laughs> when I started going like that. Hang on a minute. I was sure the whole world was one way. I was sure everybody in this country was one way. I've had a bit of a rude awakening and it started to dawn on me. Then we had Brexit, same thing again. Mm -hmm. and, and so there's this kind of poison chalice aspect of social media because it has leveled the playing field in some ways. It puts power into the hands of creators, at least in the first instance of just being creative. Mm -hmm. The technology facilitates creativity and then we have mechanisms by which we can publish it and gauge feedback. Mm -hmm. But then there are other questions around, you know, the, the, the other content that we see, the other influences, the advertising model of social media, which incentivizes sometimes not always the most virtuous traits. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how you've navigated some of that, Kat, because it seems like you've used a lot of this technology to your advantage, but there will be negative sides to it as well. Yeah, I mean, even the word blog, I feel quite nostalgic for the word blog, do you know what I mean? It's a bit like MySpace or Tumblr. Or DVD. <laughs> totally, it's along those lines. And you're kind of like, God, that's, that. I mean, it's 10 years ago, but a lot can happen in 10 years with the way the world is the new. Um, I mean, when I had my blog, it was kind of like, I put everything on there, you know, it was kind of like a kind of soundings, you know, it was kind of like, oh, what did I write last night? I need to read my blog again to remember. And then I, I felt going into journalism, I needed to have a blog, you know, but nowadays, if you're going into anything, any creative industry, you need to have your, you know, 20,000 followers on Instagram, you need to have your 20,000, you know, plus followers on Twitter. And you're kind of wondering, you know, like when you're trying to build that amount of folks, I know you, you, you know, you've got quite a following, but you sort of wonder how many people are actually engaging with what you're saying. So, you know, is is that it's a you know, like what's the reach? You know, because obviously if you have a lot of people following you, you, you can wake up in the morning and go, I feel quite good about this. Do you know what I mean? But what does it really mean? Um, so it's kind of like that way, like you say. Like, I, I've been on Twitter before, and I, I'm not really on Twitter. Um, I think I follow about six people, and six people follow me. I'm more like Instagram sort of things. I'm more like kind of photographs, more like me kind of bits that I, I like that better. 
Um, but I do remember, to answer your question, when I was doing my Dearest Scotland project, which was a project that I did in 2014, where we went around Scotland to ask people what they thought the future of Scotland might be. And we used Twitter for that. And I just thought, oh my God, this is brutal. This is absolutely brutal. Like, you know, the kind of things that people were saying to me. And that was like back in the day, and it's 10 times worse now. But, and this was just a project that was kind of like for the future of Scotland. But I was like, the abuse is already, you know, like giving me sleepless nights. And this is just something, you know, I'm not really doing anything controversial sort These of thing. the cracks that were showing around aye, the constitutional aye. issue, but it was and like noticed, every single issue became absolutely. a symbol of that, didn't it? I noticed it was affecting my mental health. So I had to go to Twitter, you know, when I started, I just have it for that. But like, it's difficult because you do want to still, I mean, we're probably that age where you're like, you don't want to be in that all the time. You don't want, you know, you want to sort of like have conversations and you want to meet people and you want to sort of build whatever you're trying to build or get your word out or whatever. Um, but it is what it is and you have to engage with it and people engage with you because obviously that's the only way that people maybe think that they can engage with you or can have a piece of you. You know, and I, I'm not really big into that. I like, you know, I want to just be a writer, but I know I have to. I know I have to have that step of like being on Instagram, being on Twitter, you know, like having so many like posts a day or kind of like, I remember used to, what was it, the, the Twitter board um, app where it's kind of like you'd post things or you'd schedule them and stuff like that, you know. And uh, I was like, oh man, oh, I don't know, I don't know, you know, and it's like I've tried to refrain from it. So it's difficult, it is really, really difficult because we're living in reality where if you're kind of, if you're a writer, you're trying to sell books, you're, you know, you're trying to sell your name, you're trying to do this, try to do that. Um, and you need that, you know, because I mean, if you say to a 20-year-old nowadays, I'm not on social media, I think you're like, you know what I mean, like what you're about, you know, it's like, um, so it is, it's difficult to just find that balance of living in the real world but also using that as your, t especially if you've done like what I've done, the self-publishing bit. Because I'm sure like, if you're with a big publisher, they do a lot of that stuff for you, you know? Aye, well, I, I was going to, but actually that brings me nicely, kind of what I wanted to get back into the real world with it and, 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 and talk about the, the uh, environment that we do most of our work in, right? Because it's, it's very important, mm -hmm. obviously, to have the right sort of space to be creative and have the right kind of running as well, you know, so I, I remember before lockdown, the nightmare of that, um, I would go away somewhere for maybe three or four days because I would need, I would need a day to give myself permission to just focus on, on writing. Uh, I, I wasn't able to just kind of jump in, do something, jump back out. Mm -hmm. And I always like that kind of, a, I like the sort of James Kelman way of doing it where he get, gets up early in the morning mm -hmm. and he only needs to do two or three hours and then he feels that he's made contact with the work and he can just go on with his day. But then once you have children and then there's a pandemic, all of that goes out of the window. Mm -hmm. So my second book was really like a real struggle, a sentence, a paragraph, just making contact with it once a day, whatever I could do. But in an ideal scenario, and I'll start with you, Irvin, what is your process in terms of what kind of space do you like to write in? How do you like to write? Is there a specific way of doing it or, or does it change? Um, I'll, you know, I like to try to, I mean, everyone has been, everything I've written, I mean, I've written about, I don't know how many books now, but everyone has been slightly different. I think the, the fun is kind of um, reinventing, the, you know, the process to, to, um, to fit with the, the kind of thing you're trying to write in a lot of ways. I mean, 
Some ones have been, you know, up in the, usually I prefer to get up in the morning and do it early when there's no distractions. Sometimes I'll write through the night though, and I'll, you know, I'll, uh, but um, what I did find when I kind of started to make money, I had this idea about what a writer would be and all the things that were, could make me a better writer. And I remember um, I basically bought this big fucking mansion and um, I'm going to have this big writer's suite, you know, I'm going to have all these books on the walls, I'm going to have a balcony and kind of had this in Chicago and I had this big, um, this big table that I could, people could come around and I could, we could meet and we could talk and I had this, the, the big screen so I could watch the DVDs of, you know, the, the, the shows and all that that I was going to be writing on and or stuff. Um, and I had a, a gym downstairs, a big quitted out gym and I had a cinema room and all that, you know. And, and never, you know, every time you, you get to that point or you're sitting down, you think, you're in the gym, you think, this is great, this is good, but I should actually be working. So you go and you work and you think, God, I've got a fucking big cinema down there, I'll never <laughs> use it. So you go to the cinema and then you, then you get fed up with that and you, get, you, you think, you're so, I'm in this mad, I've created this fucking bizarre mausoleum for myself, like, you know. And um, there's a beautiful art house cinema just around the corner from me. So I would go there and watch movies. And I enjoyed sitting in the cinema with other people and b buying my ticket and all that. And I enjoyed, you know, I had this big writing suite. I would be scrunched up in the, you know, I'd be scrunched up in the corner of this cafe and people would be coming and going. And I love writing like that. You know, I have to be outside and I have to have a bit of chaos around me. And when I'm putting it together, I have to be quiet. But, and then there was, you know, this like the, the, you know, the gym, I was, there's a, a great gym around the corner. I'd do much more when I went in there and for just sitting on my own and all that. And I realised that you don't need all that stuff. It's just rubbish. You know, like, you, know you kind of, you, you, you want to get out and um, you, you get so much of your, um, your ideas and enthusiasm for just being engaged with things that are going on around you rather than locking yourself away. You know, so I don't, you know, so I've stopped all this, um, kind of big houses nonsense like you know I'm happy in a small place now with just um, just one room to write in quite a Spartan room you know and then I can you know sort of take it outside but yeah as, as times and regimes go I just change it change it all the time right? oh, that's that's kind of encouraging in a way do you know <laughs> what I mean to, to think that even when you have a, a level of resource at your disposal to create what you think is the perfect environment it's just still that grass is always greener thing yeah. oh I've got that no back round to the shite gym, back to the cinema, even though I've got a cinema. You know what I mean? And, and, and that, that really there is that need to be around excuses. people. You need excuses not to write, basically, as well. You know, and the, the more you have everything supposedly optimum, the more you take that away from yourself. But, but you are energised by people being around you, I think. Yeah. What about you? Have you got a kind of... Because I remember you just being able to get super focused back in college mm. um, in a way that I really did envy. You know, you had kind yeah. of tunnel vision when the moment called for it, whereas mm. I would kind of shit the bed a wee bit. Do you <laughs> yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And just disappear for a couple of months, you know, and appear, reappear with another item in my criminal record. Brun scans. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was, it was, it, but there is a kind yeah. of focus, and I guess that is a sort of natural ability that you've got, but is there an ideal setting or scenario? What do you need in order to, to support your, your creative process? Can I tell you, it's definitely no as celebrated as Irwin's like. I go to the Mitchell Library because I'm inspired by that mad funky carpet. I don't know if anybody here's been to the Mitchell Library. Upstairs. And it's upstairs. It's like being it's on acid. Place, great place to write. I, that's, that's where I go when I'm, when I'm because I, I, have, I have two bedrooms at home and during COVID my partner had to use the end bedroom where I would write. Um, 
And then I was like, oh, okay, this isn't working, I can't do it in the living room, you know, and it's like doors going and the neighbours and all that. So I, I take myself to the Mitchell Library and I still do that. Um, and it's a room where it's like complete silence and you very rarely get libraries nowadays where it's complete silence because they've got activities on and they've got all sorts going on, yeah. cafes and all that, but in there it's like you can hear a pin drop and if somebody sneezes they turn round and it's like shh, do you know what I mean, because it's that sort of place. So I, I go there, I go there and I sort of tune in to just that building and I like to walk around mm -hmm. it maybe and have a nice lunch and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and then I'll do like a good shift in there kind of way, that, that, that's my favourite place. It's interesting, you talk about libraries, as you say, and this is it's obviously contextualised why libraries are becoming community centres and drop-in centres and it's, it's because public services are being run down and a long drawn out process of managed decline mm -hmm. where uh, in order to justify their existence and increase footfall, the library has to become everything to everyone, mm -hmm. which undermines the fundamental purpose of a library, which is to provide a place where you can sit down and hear yourself think without having to spend five quid for a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. and, and, and people who are quite happy and content to see that demise of the library these are people who tend not to know what it's like to live in a paper-thin block of flats mm -hmm. where you can hear a couple arguing above you. You can hear a drug deal going on next door, a couple of newborn twins there, and God knows what the fuck's going on down the stairs. Mm -hmm. And so actually in some communities, the library is the only place where it's quiet enough for you to contemplate mm -hmm. anything other than, I fucking hate living here, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. and, and, and so, when we see that, that, that this, I would call it an attack on libraries. I know that the leader of Glasgow City Council and all the other local authorities would have a very persuasive explanation for why the library's being left uh, in, the, in the state that it's in. But what do you think the impact would be on people from our kind of background trying to get into the sort of game that we're in, whatever level we're at? when the whole, the whole concept of a library itself is no longer as fundamental to the community experience as it was certainly when I was a kid. Mm. Yeah, man, I, you know, as I said, I do like chaos around me, but there comes a point when you need silence, you need to be able to concentrate, you need quiet. And, um, you know, it's like uh, we had, when I was growing up in Muir House in the scheme, we had the, the library there and it was just such a haven. It was a, a place that you could just sit and, you kind of, when you're, when you're a wee kid, you, got a bit, you kind of got a bit pissed off getting told off all the time for making a noise and all that. But um, when I got to a point where I, I really wanted to read and concentrate on what I was doing, I really wanted to write, it was such, there were such great places and you really valued that silence. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, I think, it, you know, it's like, it's, it's a really good point that you've made that, that um, you don't have that place of refuge. If you're in a small council flat, you don't, you can't really, you can't even have books basically because you can't, you know, the, the shelves, you know, if you try to put shelves up, you know, the wall would come down and you'd be kind of, you have knocked two flats into one almost. And I think, you know, because I, you know, I had this notion that um, once I made, kind of made money as a writer, I would have a place that would be stuffed with books, would be big shelves and all that kind of stuff. And I do, you know, in my, my flat here and then my flat in London, I really do appreciate having that, I appreciate having that. Uh, sort of shelving all over the place, nice shelving and the books on display and kind of I can get to them easy, I can get to these reference books easy. And that's a kind of, um, 
you know, that's because I've, I've made a bit of money and I'm fortunate and lucky to be able to replicate the, the library, if you like, the experience mm. of the library at home, you know. Um, but, um, you know, in, initially, when I'm getting ideas together and I'm just banging anything down, that's what I do. I write until I get 20,000 words. Basically, I don't look at anything and then I'll, I'll pick out the themes and the characters from that. And then I've got, I've got to have that noise, I've got to have that chaos around me, I've got to have people kind of shouting and sort of, um, kind of you know, and sort of, you just to have that sort of, um, you know, I mean, I sometimes I write on the tube in London, I write on the circle line, I'll go around twice, basically, and that's kind of um, <laughs> four hours. It's great, it means you, get, you do a four-hour shift. If you go around twice, you've done this kind of basic, you know, three-and-a-half, four-hour shift, and... Um, You've got all these descriptions of people, you know, if you're, if you're struggling for a description of character, you just look at somebody across there and say, uh, <coughs> she had dark hair, more of uh, a white overcoat, I'm crap at all that kind of stuff, you know, so um, it's just great, you've got them all there, you yeah. know. And I guess, just to kind of go back to the library thing, one of the difficulties I was struggling with when I was um, writing my first book was that I was finding myself getting resentful of the other members of the community who were using the libraries for different reasons mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. they were there and it was very noisy. Mm -hmm. There was no thought put into, okay, so if this is a mother and toddler group yep. or this is a drop-in centre for people who are, are, are getting advice for X, Y and Z. And these are all people that I would advocate for and defend in the public realm on, a, on an instinctive mm -hmm. basis. Mm -hmm. And then I find myself in the library like, Fucking shut the fuck up! Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm totally. trying to Been fucking there. write a fucking book. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and and and, yeah. and I guess that's kind of part of the hustle and bustle of life now. Where yeah. we, we're forced into these increasingly smaller spaces, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. uh, what we actually want to use those spaces for, or the proper spaces that we might need to do all those different things. Mm -hmm. It seems like like our, our, our leaders aren't, aren't there. It's like they don't give a fuck. Maybe they've all got libraries in their home. Maybe they've all got nannies looking after their yep. kids. Yep. I don't know. Uh, mm -hmm. Would you find yourself in the absence of, of a haven like the Mitchell Library? Mm -hmm. You would have to go to fucking Starbucks or something, yeah, wouldn't and you? I hate, yeah, yeah, no, I, would, I, would, I just I couldn't, <laughs> I just couldn't. But kind of echoing what um, Irvin was saying about being a child, when, when I was a teenager, um, I, I knew that I was like the only creative person in my family. And that can be a bit of a challenge because like, it's like, oh, to get fancy ideas, she wants to be a writer, you know, there was nobody really like, I have a, my mum, my dad, my brother, my cousins, my aunties, nobody was, so I would go to my, the library in the Westwood in East Kilbride as a refuge to surrounded by books where I could feel that it's all right to be, want to be a bit artistic or a bit creative, you know, and that was, that was a place where it was still um, very much part of the community, but it was very much a library in the sense of it's a quiet place. And then you would go and you would get your wee, you know, remember in the days when you get your wee paper tickets and they'd put the wee thing in and they were always like kind of different colours and all that. And uh, it's a wee bit nostalgic, but that was a big, big thing for me, definitely. And obviously, because there isn't a place nowadays for the mothers and toddlers group or the, you know, whatever that is, then everybody's kind of chucked in. So it's, it, it's a kind of thing where that's no right, but there's something other going on, you know, um, because it's like it's like noise and top of silence that doesn't equate 
you know, so somebody's made that decision within power to, you know, and, and it's that's a normalisation like, of that. It's uh, not like, look, it's shit just now. If but you're we're working age, on creating a new space. Normal now. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, like it's that. just everybody has to uh, adjust to it. I mean, uh, I remember running youth clubs in these mm. places, so I, I see it from all the different angles. Um, but just mm. uh, it's kind of worrying because what does it say about the potential of people? To, to ascend into culture, to then become an example to other people from their kind of background that this is a possibility. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we produce role models of the future when that vital me mechanism of social mobility is mm -hmm. being undermined to the extent uh, that it is? Now, I'm just checking my, I'm just checking my watch. I think what I'm going to do um, is I'm going to throw it open to you guys. Mm -hmm. I kind of hogged it yesterday a wee bit, so there was only 10 minutes of questions, and I regretted it after because <laughs> the audience, to be honest, did ask some questions that were far more insightful than anything that I could come up with. So tonight I'm just going to open it right up at quarter past and, and hand <coughs> over to you. You can indicate your desire to speak in the usual way uh, by just raising your hand and then someone will approach you uh, with a roving microphone. And if you could keep your question to a question, we're not looking for uh, a statement to the United Nations or anything like that, okay? Um, and make sure it's a good question. Do you know what I mean? Because nobody wants to hear your stupid wee daft question. I um, want to hear your daft question. <laughs> <laughs> We've got always gentlemen. One here, one here. I'm nervous actually even to, to, to attach a gender because you're silhouetted by the light. So <laughs> yeah. I'll just say there's a person there. Hey, it's uh, Rob. Irvin, sorry, question for you. Just wondering, um, how do you find the difference between your films that have been portrayed and the TV series you're doing currently? Um, yeah, I mean, I think you've, you've probably got a... It depends. If you're doing a film for a studio, you've kind of, you're probably a bit more prescribed because you're working for a corporation, really. If you're doing an independent film, uh, it depends on the producers and the financiers and all that, you know, what the relationship you have with them. Um, TV's much more kind of, um, it's much more a, a kind of sort of corporate concern, you know, they know how to make TV programmes. You go, you know, you know the, the streaming platform or the broadcaster have, um, they have a, you know, there's a, I think you have this incredible freedom when you write a book and you have a lot less freedom when you do a, 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 a movie and um, probably a, quite a bit less freedom again when you do TV because you've got all these issues about um, target audiences and the watershed and um, all that kind of stuff. There's all these red lines about representation and language and kind of... Uh, so, so, so TV can be... Um, it's interesting. It's just a very, very different process. It's like you know, writing a book and writing a TV show, or even adapting a TV show from a book. They're just such kind of chalk and cheese type of things. Thanks for your question. And by the way, I, I was only being facetious when I said no one wants to hear your stupid wee question. <laughs> All right. I mean, he, 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 even a less than brilliant question is still going to be a vital contribution to the discourse. Got another another one over here. Hi there. Uh, you mentioned earlier about the onslaught of AI. How confident, and you've all three of you mentioned that, that human approach and that. Everyone mentioned about the saw and you talked about the conversations you had, Kat, and how you built your, your stories around. How confident are you that the humanist approach to consciousness 
can stand and withstand AI in the future and coming up in all forms of the written word? I, th I think it's really difficult to know to answer that question. I think it would be good to answer that question because then it means that we as humans would have a bit of a handle on it. But it's as if it's all running out of control as far as I can see. Do you know what I mean? It's like there's, I feel like in the last year, um, you pick up a newspaper or, or, or who picks up a newspaper anymore? I wish folks still did. Or you, you read something online and in the top three headlines is something to do with AI, you know, and it's to do with films or it's to do with the Chinese or the Russians or whatever, do you know what I mean? And it's like, we need to know more about it, but we need to kind of find like that information other than the headlines that have been driven at us, I think, you know, because it will affect all of us, um, you know, and I think in two, like in like this time next year, there might be something that will explode through it mm -hmm. and we don't see it coming, but so we need to kind of intelligize ourselves around has it. Has anybody sure. heard of a film called Accelerate or Die? by Jake Chapman, the, the artist guy. It's a really, really good film. It's mm. like, um, it's about everything, about the end of capitalism and AI and all this kind of stuff. But um, one thing that somebody was, was quite interesting, they said that, um, that we kind of tend to sort of uh, embody kind of human and human values as good and kind of robotics as kind of bad and all that kind of stuff. But um, I mean, it's, uh, it's human beings that are, you know, they're, they're programming the AI machines to lie and all that, and they're kind of making them into their own image. So maybe if AI, if AI machines and robots became sentient, there would be an improvement on humans. Maybe it is the next kind of stage in evolution. Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't get kind of, when you think about sort of, um, you know, racism, imperialism, greed, exploitation and all that, we shouldn't really sort of, um, maybe we should be a bit sort of, um, cagey about holding up humanism as something to sort of um, to be aspirational towards and t t defensive about. Yeah, I, I think that, that I agree with we need to have a bit of humility about our own natures <coughs> and the ultimate value of that. But obviously the best of us at any given time is important to try and retain that. For me, when I look at AI, I, I watched one of the, the a very long form discussion in uh, US Congress about it. It was just a bunch of people who were all in the AI game, bringing to Congress all of the threat modelling that they had done, including a demonstration where the guy did a, it was an AI of him talking to the politicians because he was demonstrating that it was like for like, you know. And so I think one of the ways that it becomes normalised is there are amazing humorous things that it can do, you know, like country singers rapping NWA mm. and uh, the N-word is replaced by the sound of like cowboy pistols and it's novelty and you're like, oh, that's hilarious, you know what I mean? Biggie Smalls rapping two-pack lyrics that are about him and they're both dead from gun violence. <laughs> and, and so it becomes normalised and it permeates in that way. I'm less concerned about the, the, the impact it has on creatives because I think sometimes some of the things that we think are creativity is actually just labour. You know what yeah. I mean? Editing, punctuation, grammar, all that shit, that's not creativity half the time. A lot of the time that's just hard labour. There are creative things you can do with it, and once you master those things you can be creative. But as a message have any less value because I sent it to you through an electronic programme rather than wrote it down in a piece of paper and walked 400 miles and delivered it to you myself, do you know what I mean? So some of the arguments against it are kind of missing the point that it can take a lot of hard work out of it, but it's the escalation. It's the same with nuclear weapons, it's the same idea. One country gets it, develops it, this forces the other countries mm. to develop it as well because they're like, well, they're going to have an advantage. And so it's just this kind of game theory, tit for tat, 
The thing with AI, though, is there's a point where it can become self-aware and then it just starts making its own autonomous decisions and that is, quite frankly, fucking terrifying. Mm. You know what I mean? Not to put the shits up, y'all. I've got a story in my, in my book, funnily enough, called The Sex Bots Are Coming, The Sex Bots Are Coming, which is a kind of pun on the movie, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. And basically, it's a wee Glasgow guy that wakes up in this um, uh, kind of... Uh, laboratory um, in, in Japan, in Tokyo, and his soul is entered into the, the, the sort of realm of a, of a very sexy um, sex bot kind of thing, and he's um, been programmed to say you know, to, his, to his client, to the guy that buys him, buys her, um, you know, oh, you're so sexy, oh, you're so this, you're so that. But I've got this sort of like in brackets, for fuck's sake, is this what it's going to be like in the future? Do you know what I mean? And it's because I'm a big fan of Black Mirror and I just wanted to do a wee bit around that. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's kind of like, like I kind of wanted to do this thing around, you know, it's, it's, it's like it's everywhere. And I think the thing about like AI sex bots is quite interesting because where's that going to go? Um, but this, you know, like the wee guy, the wee Glasgow guy is like your kind of conscious going, Oh, this is too far. This is too far. Like you know, um, it's like I've got to do this. You know, this is the power that this I've got as a sex bot. No, I'm going to rein this back a wee bit. You know what I mean? So maybe as a humankind, we need to rein it back. And but how we do that, I don't know. Because it's already kind of out of control. You were making, um, you know, we're trying to make um, kind of robots kind of more human, but we're trying to make humans more robotic as well through mm. all the processes that we're we're going through. If you look at um, I mean, if you look at like, uh, I mean, I was, I was researching this, this book, this novella that I'd written about um, teenagers that were addicted to gaming and addicted to hardcore por uh, pornography and all that. And you think then um, it's quite kind of horrendous that somebody's um, sexuality can, can be sort of uh, kind of determined by sort of watching hardcore pornography, you know, watching really exploitative hardcore pornography. And you think, just a bit, you know, the, the, the mechanics of watching a 2D image and then having a, a real 3D person, you know. And, you know, and now they're, they're talking about teenagers having erectile dysfunction and all this kind of stuff. So it's like, um, so there's a sort of, um, there's a kind of automation of the human spirit that's going on with the technology as well, you know. So it's maybe kind of, um, in the whole dumb and down culture, it's kind of artificial stupidity that's as kind of um, as scary as artificial intelligence in a lot of ways. Yeah, there definitely are parallels. We have time for another question. I'll come to you, right? I'll come to you in a minute, right? It's nice to see it, because see before the, before the questions, can you see anybody? It's nice yeah. to just see, talking about AI, about human faces. Of course. I don't think I would have needed a microphone. Because <laughs> we're, we're recording the audio, so for the yeah. people listening to the podcast later on, it's yeah. for their benefit. Do any of the three of you feel the responsibility to be role models, and what would that look like? fucking looking at me for um, <laughs> uh, I mean I don't know I think it's kind of grandiose to, to, to announce yourself as a role model but if you do get out and about and you get a sense that people are watching you and taking influence from some of the things that you've said or some of the changes that you've made in your life I mean I'm thinking specifically about my journey in recovery and in sobriety over the last 10 years 
That's probably the most... When people say, do you hope that your work changes the world? Or have you noticed the impact of your work? And they're expecting me to say, aye, Rishi Sunak read my book. And then he was like, ah, get we down then and he'll sort it out. Do you know what I mean? When actually, mm -hmm. it's the messages I get every week from people who say they went to their first recovery meeting off the back of a documentary that they watched. Or they told somebody that they're, they're close to that they think that they're struggling. Uh, there are people who I've met through social media and my work who I've, I've helped in recovery and they've gone on to achieve uh, string more years of sobriety together than I was able to, to string together. So I would say in terms of a tangible impact that I could actually like measure, then, uh, then, then that's the sort of impact that I've had. Whether that makes me a role model, I don't know, because at the end of the day, I've also got to live my life. And I think that that is, can be a dangerous road to go down when you begin to think of yourself as that. Um, because I mean, it's it's kind of it becomes a sort of a, a form of self-indulgence and self-importance for me. That's a very dangerous thing, personally speaking. Uh, I had uh, a lovely experience before COVID started. It was in January 2020, where I'd been asked to be a judge in a short story competition. And it was um, South Lanarkshire schools, and because I'd went to a South Lanarkshire school, some of the, um, the, the, the students who had uh, wrote a story was the, the school that I went to, kind of thing, and uh, in the area. And uh, there was myself and a retired teacher, and um, we get 10 stories each, I think it was, 10 or 12 stories each. And then there was some that was like, ah, you know, they've just kind of been pushed into it with their... Um, with our teacher. There was another one that was like, oh my God, it was like, this has been plagiarised. And I thought, oh no, you know, I am need to tell the teacher about this and whatever. And then there was one that was absolutely stunning. It was, it was like the best thing I've read and it was like a 15 year old lassie. And it was brilliant, it was absolutely brilliant. And the thing about it was, is that we decided that she was the winner, but then COVID struck and we never actually got to present. I think so. To, to answer your question about role models, I think I would rather maybe be like a mentor for like a little diamond in the rough. Because I remember doing competitions like that at school, and if somebody had kind of came and said, "Oh, listen, you've got a wee bit of talent there," I would take you aside and do something like that. So I would rather sort of find the fourteen-year-old me, if that makes sense, rather than you know like that kind of thing, and and go right now. You can do it. This is this. Ta I always think talent will out. You know, and I thought that with this story, this lassie, and it was, it was a shame that I never got to meet her, but I, that's the kind of, you know, mentor rather than role model, yeah. Uh, I'm not a role model. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right, there was one final <laughs> person over here that i seen who I was keen to bring in uh, because it's been, it's been quite a male-dominated event. Uh, over here, there we go, just along, make sure that mic gets to you. Hi, um, so all three of you write in working class voices, but how important is it, you know, when you're defining your audience? I mean, we're in a fringe venue, it's all very middle class. Irving, you know, train spotting's on at the fringe, it's very kind of middle class. They might think train spotting's comical in a way, which it is, but does it bother you that the people that it, it's talking about aren't receiving it? Are they receiving it? Um, yeah, they are receiving it. Maybe receiving it in different ways. Not, maybe not paying um, sort of uh, big sums of money on theatre tickets. 
in the fringe, but you know, maybe you know they're reading the books or they're watching the the films. Um, and it's one of these things that you know, it's it's uh, it's an inevitable kind of process. It's like when um, when you know my, my first book, for, you know, when it sold ten thousand copies, I was like a local hero. You know, my my mates, everybody was saying, oh, he's he's representing our lives. Well done, you know. Um, and then when it sold a hundred thousand copies, it was like fucking money there, eh? Yeah. <laughs> and then you know, and then it's like a million copies. It was like. Uh, He's fucking sold us in the river. He's fucking, and, all, you know. and it's like the, the book never changes. You know what I mean? It just, it just, you know, there's not one word that's been changed in that. You know, but it just picks up um, different audiences, and it, you know, it went national, then it went global, and um, and it's like, and, uh, and you know, and people feel that people that are invested in this, and they feel, you know, they feel an ownership to it. You know, they feel a kind of ownership to that book and the survey of life and stuff like that. And um, it's our culture, it's our communities. And they feel it's been taken away from them, the bigger it gets, the more it falls, flies into capitalism, basically, it flies into this uh, market. And it is, you know, it's been taken away. And it, I feel, I feel as if it's been taken away from me too, you know what I mean? I, but, you know, and writing a book is an act of giving away, so it's not as bad for me as it is for people who are kind of into that um, thing. So it is, I mean, anything that's uh, successful takes it further afield and more mainstream from where it's, from where it's at. And, uh, it is, you know, we're, we're going to be doing Trainspotting as a musical next year, and we're going to start in the West End of London, and that's quite a, you know, we'll have kind of, we'll have discounted tickets for kind of coach parties from Essex coming in and all that sort of stuff, but it's still a, it's still an issue that people are having to pay these huge prices to see it, to have an experience like that. And, um, the Edinburgh Festival has been like that since time began, and it's it's really very hard now for um, for anybody to, to to put on a show. It's really expensive to put on a show, it's, and uh, it's not the you know it was it was never this big kind of democratic thing that was always touted to be, but it becomes less and less and less like that now. But again, you know, it's like the festival and all these aspects of art and culture, they're, they're emblemic of what's going on in the world, you know, in general, they're emblemic of the, 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 the destruction of the working classes and the middle class and the concentration of wealth in fewer and fewer hands, the concentration of the corporate wealth, the, the, um, the, the whole kind of idea of cloud wealth now supplanting capitalism, like the techno-feudalist empire supplanting capitalism and the capitalism class as a kind of vassal class, kind of um, in between that and uh, exploiting the, the, the exploitation of the citizens. So all these things are happening in the world and they're happening apace. Uh, and we're all part of it, but as, as you said just now, Darren, we've all got to live our lives. We've all got to live our lives in this world, you know, and it's like you, you're constantly making a trade-off between trying to live the best life that you possibly can for yourself and the people around you that you've got responsibilities for, but also trying to, to, um, to have some kind of um, broader responsibility to a community in general, you know, and to see where, where all that's going, yeah? yeah. I think that's a nice place to, to leave it. Thanks for your, uh, for your question. I could have chewed over that one for hours. <laughs> um, but we'll leave it there. I just want to say, before we go, um, 
I've indicated to you both privately, you know, my gratitude for your kindness and generosity at different points in my life and in, in my work, but I just want to kind of publicly say that as well, you know. It's, it's a real privilege for me to have you here just in your own right as creators, but also there's a sentimentality to it as well, just because I, I, I have vivid memories at different points of you, showing me time, showing me compassion, showing me a wee bit of love that really did set me on a, on a certain kind of trajectory at different points, so thank you very much for no. that. Um, the final thing I just want to say is, uh, if you've enjoyed the spirit of this event, the format of the event, the wisdom, insight, humour of this event, uh, there's a few other of these events happening until Saturday, so you can pick up tickets on your way out of the door. <laughs> if if, uh, if you don't want to do that, I mean, the woman has indicated there that you're all middle class, apparently, so I see no reason why you can't, to be honest. Uh, there's somebody I know that definitely isn't. No, I know. It's just because I think she thinks that they'll all be fucking rabid, you know what I mean? There can't be working class people here, everyone's nice and polite. Um, but uh, if you do want to come to some of the other shows, then, then uh, feel free just to get tickets. If not, thank you for coming to this show. Very, very grateful. I've been Darren McGarvey. This has been Common People. Enjoy the rest of your fringe. Thank you very much. <laughs>